You're listening to the Business Mike podcast. Amazing interviews with inspiring entrepreneurs. For more amazing interviews, go to www.businessmike.com or download our podcast every Monday from Pod Africa. Hello and welcome to another episode of Business Mike. And uh, joining me today is Linda. Uh, Linda, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do? Sure. I'm a painter. Um, I'm an author. I'm a podcast host, um, instructor and mentor to a number of people, both uh, in regular business. Uh, mostly when I talk with regular, when I talk regular business, it's, it's with um, folks younger than I am, <laughs> put it that way, that are just starting out as business entrepreneurs or in, you know, starting into the corporate world. Um, and I, uh, do, I, I mostly write and paint now. Uh, a little bit of art instruction on the side so right and obviously with um, your work experience you've come across very many things uh, one in particular is a story about Jean uh, 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 who for some people um, I won't say his other name perhaps you can say his other name and then let the people know who he is and then the story that you have about Jean <laughs> okay um, yeah Jean Roddenberry who was the creator founder if you will um I'm just basically president emeritus, I guess you could call him, of, of all things Star Trek. And so uh, he's he's known, I think, worldwide for that, actually. And uh, I had, I'm a big fan of Star Trek and Star Wars. And um, when I was in my 20s and I was working at Procter & Gamble um, as a technician, I just kind of felt all this creativity draining from me and decided that I was going to write a Star Trek script. And I did. And I was a brash 20-some-year-old person. And I thought, I'm just going to send it directly to Gene Roddenberry because, you know, it's it's so good. So, so I did. I sent it register mail, which in America um, basically means that Gene Roddenberry had to walk down from his office and sign the receipt and receive the package from the mailman. And, you know, thinking about it now, many, many, many years later, that was a pretty brash thing to do. But I got back the little tag that had Gene Roddenberry's signature on it. And uh, the interesting thing about this story is uh, when I got the rejection letter back, I got it from Eric Stilwell. So if you're a big Star Trek fan, you'll understand where that name fits in. It's Star Trek The Next Generation. He was, I believe, the executive producer or maybe even higher up than that. And uh, it was kind of interesting. In that folder, he returned my script, had a letter on it had uh, also included lists of agents with circles around certain ones that I should have contacted and um, noticed the tense was should have contacted. And I put it all in a file or back into my little folder envelope that it came in and I threw it aside and said, a rejection, you know, I, I can't write. Why did I even try to do this? And about um, well, 2014, I found that package again. I have kept it all these years. And this was probably back in the 1980s when I did this and um, pulled it out, looked at it and promptly hit my head against the wall because everything that Eric Stowell said in his letter and provided me in that envelope was basically saying, resubmit your your script, but do it the proper way. <laughs> so even going to the top guy, Gene Roddenberry, didn't get me in the door. I still still would have had to find an agent. They only accepted scripts from an agent at that time and, you know, and gone through it that way. But it's just like I threw away this opportunity. It was just so, you know, eye-opening in 2015. <laughs> 
Right, right. Now, I think there's a lesson in, in what you've just said, because um, <laughs> I, I don't know whether I, as you grew older, like, would you have had the um, the audacity to send in that letter uh, if you were any older? Or are you, um, you know, the type of person that would actually do it regardless of, because most people actually have the fear of rejection, so they don't even do it. They think it, but they don't even bother doing it. No, I probably would still be that audacious. Oh, okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah, I um, nothing really stops me if there's something that I want to accomplish. If there's a way that I can get in touch with someone to to accomplish something, I I send them the email because what's the worst thing they could do? The worst thing they could do is say no. So and you're no worse off. So so why wouldn't you do that? So get over the fear and and go do that. Go whatever that audacious thing is, as long as it's safe. <laughs> go and do that. Right. And obviously you mentioned that you're a writer as well. So you have um, well writing and painting. So you have multiple skills. But I want to start with the writing first, especially on the part about um, self-publishing. So lots of people want to write books and um, they're not sure how to publish those books themselves. So I was just wondering if you have any tips for people out there who are listening to this that maybe want to write a book on their own and publish it as well. Okay. Um, well, it, the internet makes this very, very simple now. Um, simple as in it's easier to get something published if you self-publish versus going, trying to find a literary agent, trying to find a traditional publisher. So I'll just quickly kind of walk through some of the tools that I use to do that. Um, and, and one of them is Grammarly. And I use Grammarly. It's a Grammarly.com. And I use that while I'm writing. It kind of checks sentence structure and tense and, and all of the things. I don't really don't have to worry about grammar while I'm writing uh, because I have this little thing turned on and it tells me whenever I make a mistake. So it's pretty wonderful. And then um, I, that doesn't stop me from actually sending it to a person editor uh, because I, I enjoy that reaction to the story and things. And that's something that Grammarly.com can't do. And and then um, when it's all cleaned and ready to go, I turn around and um, use CreateSpace. So it's CreateSpace.com. It's part of Amazon. I think everybody worldwide knows about Amazon. <laughs> and and basically, you can go there on the internet. And that's where my paperback uh, books, back files get uploaded. So that would include your cover story, your cover fo- your cover um, on the front and back and the spine. And then also the interior, and you have to provide those in a PDF form. And they have a wealth of information out on their help. The help part of CreateSpace is wonderful. It tells you how to create your covers. It tells you, how, you know, what format that, that your book should be in. They actually have formats for you to download, um, basically Word, Microsoft Word text files that you can download and just put your you know, cut, cut and paste uh, your book into that format and not have to worry that much about, you know, actually formatting your books from scratch. And then that uploads uh, to a paperback. And then separately, I upload an ebook to Kindle. I don't do it through CreateSpace and I don't do my paperback through Kindle. You know, tip number one is do them separately, always keep them separate. And that, and one reason is because I have had cover changes on my paperbacks but not on my eBooks. It, it allows you to have a little bit more flexibility. Um, so that's that's basically the, the process. Then I, I order some paperbacks from 
the create space and you get it at a discounted price since you're the author. And, um, you know, I market both my paperback and my eBooks. So is there anything else that you could think of that um, I might want to talk? Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts, um, on, um, um, audio books as well, because uh, of recent people are actually <laughs> trying to get into audio books, get your book on, like you had mentioned on Amazon, then I have it on the Kindle, and then on Audible as well. So I don't know if you ventured into that space and what your thoughts are in the industry generally about audio books. Yeah, well, funny you should ask that because Blind Influence was just delivered to me yesterday. My author files were just delivered to me yesterday from Skyboat Media out in California. So, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm venturing into the audiobook uh, part of it. And one of the reasons why is because I have researched and found that actually being quote unquote discovered is um, easier through audio because there is a voracious amount of listeners who want books on audio versus people um, that want to read them. So, the, a lot of, I guess, your younger de- demographic and in some, you know, there are some older demographic as well that prefer to listen to books versus reading books. And it's easier to become discovered, if you will, uh, your book to be discovered, your book to be read or listened to, I guess is the word, um, is easier via the audiobook route than it is actual paper book and ebook. And um, it's like millions and millions of paperbacks and ebooks that are out there for everybody to wade through and try to find something to read. Audiobooks, because they cost some money to do that, you know, creating an audiobook is not cheap. You can, it could be anywhere depending on the size of the book. Now, I'm thinking probably 80 to 90,000 words, which is what my books are. Um, you know, it can take anywhere from 2000 to over $4,000 to produce. So you're talking about a big chunk of money up front that you may or may not recover, depending on how many people download and listen to your book. Um, If you have a smaller book, naturally, uh, there's going to be uh, a less cost. Typically, I think a rule of thumb is something like um, $400 per production hour. And you have to understand that production hour is how much they charge per hour. Um, Skyboat Media is, is who... Uh, I contracted to do my book with, and they're very, very high end. They won Audi Awards. Uh, they actually act out the book because they're 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 actors and actresses. And um, I have two wonderful people uh, narrating my book because I have my books come with a um, kind of a multiple point of view. So um, Gabrielle Decure is one of the ladies and if you've ever listened to audiobooks um you probably have heard Gabrielle and then Stephen uh, Stephen Runecki and if you've listened to a lot of audiobooks you've heard Stephen before Stephen has this wonderful bass voice and it's just um he had me I, I was so entertained and it was my own writing which <laughs> kind of surprised me that I'd be so entertained but it was uh, really interesting listening to it yesterday um cuz I like I said I just got the files and um Listening to it yesterday was I was cracking up because it was like oh look they're they're like real now so and that that's another aspect of audiobook all of a sudden these characters jump off the page and become you know have life breathed into them so um, it's kind of, it was an interesting journey doing that from because I have all these voices in my head of my characters and I'm going does Sean, does does my character Sean really sound like that you know so yeah that's a that's a watch out to do if you do give 
your book to someone else to read and breathe life into it, just be aware that it's not going to sound like what's in your head. And, you know, just go with it. Let them let them be their creative selves and see what comes out. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is um, whether or not the, the voices are either as good or perhaps in some cases even better um, than what you'd hoped for. Oh, I think it's better. I mean, they're just so talented. The, the people are, are so talented. That my Blind Influence is going to come out on um, audio, and it will be in, in Audible on April 3rd. And, I mean, I'm only, gosh, I'm probably three. I mean, I just started Chapter 2, I think, um, on it. And, and it's just, I mean, I loved one of the characters – Part of the setting is in England, and um, there was a there was a part that I just finished listening to where Stefan had to create four different English accents so that you knew just listening to his accent which character was saying what, and it was just it was so interesting. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden Sean Connery appeared. He was doing Sean Connery as one of my characters. I was like, I love this. <laughs> so, so it was just it was kind of like I was sitting on a set, you know, and, and in my mind seeing all these different characters appear. So I, I think they did a better job, actually. I really do. Right. And actually, you've just touched on the book. This was a question I was going to ask later on in the interview, but we can jump into it right oh. now. Is what, what your novel series um, are about? You know, what kind of things do you write about? Yeah, the, the novel series is about uh, the easiest way to, to talk about it is it's kind of like Jason Bourne meets The Good Wife in the West Wing. So it's got a spy, an MI6 agent. It's got a female lawyer, and then it's got a senator who later in the series becomes president. Uh, and these three are basically um, very aware back in 1979, the, the, the fourth book in the series that I'm writing now takes place in 1981, and they're very aware that there's this undercurrent of dysfunction it, within the governments of not just America, but around the world that you know, if, if unchecked is going to get us to, um, if, if you are, if you will, where we are today. Okay. So a lot of dysfunction, a lot of distrust. Um, and so they kind of take it on themselves to see if they can, they're oriented in that they want to make sure the decisions that they make, you know, changes the world and keeps us from getting to, you know, where we are today. So it's, it's based in history. It's got a lot of historical elements to it. Um, it's mystery and suspense. And then there's, you know, some, some, some things that are happening to my characters that are very personal. So you get to know them. It's not, you know, very, it's not just, you know, Oh, if I make this decision, this will happen. It's not like that at all. It's, it's taking things like, uh, certain operations that have now been declassified by our central intelligence agency and you can find information about them out on the web freely, and um, you know taking some of those operations and saying, well, if the outcome if the outcome of that operation instead of being A was B, how would that change where we are today? So that's kind of the premise for the Blind series. It's a, a political intrigue, mystery, suspense novel series. Wow, that sounds very interesting. I, I'm just curious. Um, you said if outcome A didn't happen and instead it was B. Now, when you're exploring that alternative that isn't um, grounded in real life, how do you then 
um, just to make the book real, do the research. Do you interview a few people and say, if, if this happened, what would that cause and that kind of thing? And, and if so, what kind of people are you interviewing just to make your book as realistic as possible? Yeah, it's... Um I haven't really done a lot of interviews with with folks, so it, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. I haven't haven't actually gotten to the that point in that in depth. I mean, there's also an assassin that appears in this, and there's some very personal um, things that have happened between the MI6 agent and the assassin that that helps him basically um, become involved with the female lawyer whose name is Nicole. And um, she's actually a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and he she gets to know Jenkins. So it brings the three of them together. And Sean has this also association with Jenkins where he has worked behind the scenes on his operations to kind of aid both the United Kingdom and um, the United States. So it's on a it's a very low level thing. I, and, you know, I haven't had like, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to go interview any like CIA agents or anything like that, but it, it's more about, um, I guess, I guess it's, it's it, it comes down to, there are some things that happen personally to them that sidetrack them, but at the same time, um, they're involved in major operations. For example, there's in, in the book, the first three books, there's this underlying operation that's going on called operation mockingbird and um this was a C- this was a real cia operation and their operation was basically um it was a propaganda tool it was used by the cia by cia to basically pay journalists to get their story out the way they wanted it and um that operation is is then kind of fictionalized in my books and present it to in through these characters in different ways. Wow, that sounds makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it sounds very, very exciting. <laughs> and at the end of the interview, I'll definitely um, ask people where they can, you know, find these novels and and, and have a listen to them. Yeah, that it, it's interesting because like I, I write the books in trilogies. So the first three books is is one set. So you can like like if you have enough with the characters and everything, you can jump out at that point. And now I'm writing the second part of the trilogy. And it's absolutely true. I mean, I am going to, at some point in time, have to say, when am I going to make the decision about whether or not this this is going to affect where we are today? Because there's jumping off points. I don't know if anybody's re- familiar with John Jakes. Um, he used to write a series where he had a uh, one of his characters um, be part of the American Revolution. And of course, everybody knows how the American Revolution turned out. So he was one. He kind of went down the same path of does character, you know, actually change anything that happened in the war and and what happened, you know, what did did Britain really lose, <laughs> type of thing. And so it's really kind of interesting that you know, reading that series and seeing. I mean, he he you know has conversations with Ben Franklin and George Washington and you know and all this kind of stuff. So. You know, he goes riding with Paul Revere, I think, at, at some point. So it's kind of interesting um, that I'm kind of doing the same thing. And and where I end up versus where John Jakes ends up is going to be kind of interesting as well, I think. Right. And, and, and in addition to writing, of course, you do some painting as well. So I'm just really curious as to whether or not... Um, some of the talents and, and, and approach towards the work and the craft in writing is translated into the painting and vice versa. I don't know if that's a thing. 
Um, yeah, actually, it's interesting because on my podcast, I kind of look at that. All things considered, or all things created, excuse me, are, is my podcast. And one of the things I look at is the creative process across all the different arts. And it really becomes interesting because there is a set process that happens in you know, stage one is basically it's it's your imagination. It's what's out there. And it's the same if you're an artist or if you're a writer. It's I have these things going on in my head with, oh, you know, I like to paint a painting that has, you know, that's that's of the landscape. And then, you know, I want to write this book. So it's all very general at that point and, you know, very much in your mind and imagination of what it is you want to do. So for writing, you may start writing um, the outline or your free write. I tend to start with a free write. So I would just open up Word and start typing. And in painting, find, you know, a composition, if you will, that I like uh, about the painting. So maybe I'm going to do a, a painting of Claude Monet's Lily Pond in Chiverny. So now I would look at that and I would say, okay, so I want to make sure that I don't lose my my viewers. So I'm going to have to figure out the path that my eye will take around the painting. So both of them are very much outlining and and drawing what I what it is I want to happen when I get to the next step. And that basically pulls in a little bit of a movie and television production, if you will. And, and that you become the director. Now you have to decide what goes where and what that process, you know, what, what the end product will end up saying. And, and then you go through that whole process, directing it the whole time, where I put my brush strokes, what colors I put where, um, what happens to my characters you know, in chapter one, where's the plot point? Where, what, what do I have as, as a climax? You know, in the painting, where do I want the eye to stop and, and just enjoy a certain focal area of the painting? So all of that planning, you know, you become the director of all of that planning. So then we're up to the fourth stage that I call editing, which happens in both the book and in the painting. So at some point you step back from the work that you're doing as the director and you say, how does this look? How does this feel? What does this sound like? You know, where are things miss- missing? Uh, where are things too busy? Have I strayed from the course anywhere? And then you start making adjustments. So the painting side, you may end up, you know, taking something out of the softening edges maybe adding in a color to balance some of the other color that's there, maybe adding in some gray colors so that the painting isn't all vibrant and, and hard on the eyes. And in editing and writing uh, is basically, you know, do I take this scene out? Do I put another scene in? Uh, what happens to this character? Does that make sense? Is it believable? Uh, did I suspend everybody's disbelief? Can they still enjoy the story and be involved in it? Or did they walk away from it because it's just so so out of this world, you know, like like somebody has a heart attack and dies and 10 minutes later he's running down the street after he's been revived. <laughs> Does that make sense? No, you're going to lose a lot of people because they aren't going to believe that, you know. So that's the editing stage. And then at stage five is basically you become the movie producer or you become the producer. You basically then start marketing your work, whether it's painting or whether it's writing out to the masses so that um, it is enjoyed. And that's basically the stages that I look at. 
Right. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think in, in each and every one of them, both painting and writing. I'm just curious, though, as to whether in the marketing aspect there are any variances. You went through the, the stages for publishing a book, but if, if you're a painter, how would you, how would you approach that? Well, painting, marketing with painting is, is very visual, and it's also very... Um, this, there are distinct like demographics, distinct um, people who will like your work. I mean, there's people who like impressionism. There's people who like representation. There's people who like cubism. There's people who like modernism. So you, ba- you know, those demographics are very defined. And those people, at least via the Internet, tend to find you and um, your work. And that's usually the best form of advertising, whether it's book or, or writing, which is word of mouth. And that's basically somebody says, Oh, you know, have you seen, you know, have you seen John Doe's, you know, work? I think you'd really like it. The next thing you know, they're out looking at your website or contacting you on Facebook or going to one of your exhibits, if you happen to have one. And it, you know, so, so marketing that way, you basically, they, the, the group that's going to be looking at your work kind of all hang together. <laughs> so it's got like a lot easier to find that target market versus in books and, and, and audio. It's a lot harder. I think, I think to find that because somebody who's a, a crime reader may venture off in, into, you know, my, my genre, uh, you know, or maybe somebody who's reading romance is told by another reader, a friend of mine that, Oh yeah, you know, the relationship between the three of them is really fun. You, you really like this. And next thing you know, somebody's reading a, a mystery book, a mystery suspense book that, you know, wouldn't have picked it up before. So you do have some word of mouth that still kind of goes over into both, but marketing um, art is very, very visual. It, you're marketing, you know, you're, you're marketing, your painting. Um, both are very personal as far as, you know, people liking or not liking your work. It's, it's, you put yourself out there. You have to get, you have to get a really tough skin and you have to just, you know, some, it's just not some people's cup of tea and, and that's okay. So I always tell myself for somebody that doesn't like my work, there's probably 33 other people who do. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I don't, it's something you have to get used to, especially as you become one more popular. Right. Yeah. So, um, Basically, I don't know the tools that I use to market or, you know, I do a lot of social media. Um, I have a newsletter that I send out. My newsletter includes uh, basically information on what I'm doing wise and what I'm doing writing wise. Um, I do the like I said, I do the podcast. So I have a number of followers who who have gotten used to the fact that I live this dual life um, of being a writer and an artist and and they find that inspiring. And um, so that's what I do like kind of on the computer side. And then, you know, I, I also teach, um, painting. So, um, you know, I have a group of, of people who take lessons from me and, and then we get into art discussions and things like that. And, and then naturally with art, you can also have exhibits. Uh, so if you have enough paintings and, and things, you can also start then asking people to exhibit your work for you. Um, I work mostly off of commissions and, um, I also just, um, basically paint for myself. I don't um, do a lot of exhibits or anything like that uh, lately. Uh, mainly people know that if they want one of my paintings, they can commission me to do it. So it's very, very helpful in that respect. 
Right. And as we wind down, there's a question I normally ask everybody that comes onto the show, um, just so we can have a learning point. And that is, um, have you ever gone through a failure uh, in your experience in the past that perhaps taught you a lesson that has, you know, helped you go on to do better things? Oh, I was very, very hopeful that you wouldn't ask me that question. <laughs> so, um, mainly because I don't look at failure kind of the same way that everybody else does. Um, I look at failure as an opportunity uh, for me to learn and uh, hopefully for me not to repeat it again. So, you know, have I had a, a, a failure that taught me a great lesson in life? Um, I guess I would have to, to say when I was... 18, I started working for a, a company called Procter & Gamble, and I kind of gave up my dream of doing what I'm right now, which is writing. And um, I lived for 26 years uh, you know, working for somebody else in corporate America and uh, basically, like I said, gave up my dream. Um, and then after 26 years, I had had enough of working for somebody else and said, about halfway through, I should say that 26 years, I started painting because I needed something to create. And I was still writing, but I wasn't doing anything with it. Um, but it just didn't feel, it, it, I didn't feel like I, I was being who I was supposed to be. So I resigned and started um, with a lot of emphasis on my painting and, and my art career and hooked up with some wonderful master artists who mentored me and started a business with one of them and came back from that. And I was still, you know, working for somebody else at that point. And then they kind of decided that they wanted to go on a different track than where we were going. So that business venture stopped. And um, then I, you know, I finally just kind of said, well, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because I'm do I'm the one that's doing it. I'm not working for somebody else. I'm working for me from this point on. And, so I, that's what I've been doing and it's been, you know, it's been hard and, and, um, but I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned from all that is, you know, follow your dreams, keep them alive, um, keep working towards it at some point in time, you know, you, you'll stop, you'll take a look around and you'll find out that you're just, you know, enjoying life because that's what you were put here to do is what you're doing. So, yeah, I don't know if that really qualifies, but <laughs> But that that's about as close as I get. So. Right. No, it's, it's, it's a valid answer because I know there are very many people in that particular situation whereby they're, the, you know, um, doing a job, you know, just to put food on the table, but they have a passion that they yeah. want to pursue. And I, and I think in your twilight days, if you haven't taken that shot, I think it's one of the things you regret the most, you know, thinking about what could have been, what if, you know. Yeah, I, I, it, that is absolutely true. And, and I, I, you know, I don't have those regret moments. I mean, there's something that says inside of me every once in a while, wow, if I had not turned around. When I was 18, um, 19, some, I was 19, I guess it was, um, I basically threw some stuff in a car and said, that's it. I've had enough of this corporate life. This was like a year after I had gotten there, about a year and a half, I guess, after I started working it for the corporate um, America group and, and went, you know, that's it. I'm done. It was Friday night. I'm driving. That's it. I'm going out to California. I'm going to get a job as a waitress or whatever. I'm going to go to school at USC, which is University of Southern California. And I'm going to then, um, you know, start on my dream of being a film director, screenwriter, blah, blah, blah. 
And I got as far as Indianapolis, turned around and came home, which was about two hours from my home. Okay. Um, I keep forgetting you're in Uganda. So, <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> so it's, it's about two hours west of my home. And I said, gosh, my parents are going to kill me. So I turned around and came home. And it was, you know, if I could say that I regret one thing, it's the fact that I turned around and came home. But I also have a friend who is a director screenwriter out in Hollywood right now. And he and I figured out that we've got to be kindred spirits because at that same time, he was on the train to go to California to start his career as a director. And we figured out that it had to be very close to the same night <laughs> that we were both on the road hanging for California. And um, he also told me, you know, Linda, they would have ate you alive back then. And I was just like, well, okay, so maybe it wasn't supposed to be until this time. But I don't, you know, I don't really call that a regret because the 26 years at Procter & Gamble gave me so much business insight that I used now um, that it was something that I had to do and something that I had to go through to really appreciate where I am today and what I'm doing. All right. And on that note, Linda, um, we've come to the end of the interview. Thank you so much yeah, for sharing um, everything that you've done with us. And uh, for people that want to connect with you, you know, read your books, uh, see some of your work and uh, just learn about your podcast and listen to it. How can they connect with you online? Um, well, I have two websites that would probably be the easiest place for them to go. Um, the art website is lindafissler.com. So, um, are you going to have my name somewhere so that they can see how to spell it, or should I go ahead and spell that out? Um, just go ahead and spell it out. Okay, so Linda, L-I-N-D-A, Fissler, F-I-S-L-E-R, all one word, dot com. And then the books, my writing side, is Blind Series, B-L-I-N-D-S-E-R-I-E-S, dot lindafissler, dot com. So um, those are the two websites. There are contacts. Uh, there's a link up at the top on the right-hand side. You'll see the word contact. If you click on that, drop me an email. Love to hear from people out there in, in Africa and Uganda. So, Yeah, uh, and hopefully uh, this interview has inspired some of your characters to perhaps uh, touch down on the continent and have a few adventures <laughs> over here in Africa. Yeah, yeah, it, it is actually. <laughs> so I'll have to, I'm definitely going to have to check this out some more. So um yeah, so cool. And I'm also on Facebook, so if folks really wanted to connect that way, they're they're more than welcome to connect with me via Facebook. Right. Well, as well. Right. Well, thank you so much, Linda. And uh, I'll have all those links on your show notes page, which will be at businessmike.com forward slash Linda, L-I-N-D-A. So that will be very easy for people to remember. They can find all your links yeah. there and uh, learn more about everything that you're doing. Okay, sounds great. It was so good to talk with you. Likewise, Linda. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Business Mike podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to listen to more episodes just like this one, simply go to businessmike.com. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can reach me on Twitter at Daudi Mugabe, on Facebook at Business Mike, or email that's Daudi at businessmike.com. Look out for a brand new episode every Monday. And until then, take care.